Ladies and gentlemen, this evening, I'm very delighted to be with you. Tell you the real life. Behind the movie, some of you have seen, which is described in my book, An Ordinary Man. What the movie didn't tell, the ordinary man explains it in a very clear way. This evening, I would like to take you for a ride. Go back in history. Remind you what happened in the small country of Rwanda. Some of you have heard about Rwanda, but do not know even where it is on the map of the world. Why was there genocide? There was always a gap between Hutus and Tutsis, even before colonization, when a Hutu was a slave to a Tutsi. The colonizers took advantage of that gap separating both Hutus and Tutsis. Then, again, they took Tutsis to be more intelligent, more clever, more made to lead, to be leaders, whereas Hutus were supposed to work land. When they made our first ideas, colonizers went as far as bringing measurement equipment from Europe to measure noses, faces, saying that a Tutsi nose might be maybe two inches longer than a Hutu nose. That was written even in our ideas. Such situations normally don't last for so long. That is why the result was a brutal revolution of 1959 when Hutus took over. But that was not going to last for a long time again because it never included all the people of a nation. It was just for Hutus who took over. 1990, a war broke out from the eastern side of Rwanda, that is from Uganda. And without war, the Tutsi rebels started killing civilians, men first of all, inviting them for meetings, killing them inviting their young people, like many of you, to join the rebels' army, killing them. Threatened by the, the rebels, armed rebels, and also by the opposition, political position, the then president created a militia. The Interahamwe militia started also butchering Hutus, called, who were called by that time traitors or Tutsi partners, they started being butchered, killing them. You could hear that people were gathered in theaters like this one. And militia men came in, threw in grenades, killed many people, injuring many others. You could hear that. Also, people were gathered in bus stations, and militia men came in with, the, with grenades, killed many people, injuring many others.
we stopped going to bars because they were also coming, throwing grenades in bars. By 1993, people decided to leave Rwanda and go away to stay there as refugees. Many others said, no, this country is ours. We are not leaving it to thieves and killers. We are remaining in the country, but we are shifting. We are moving from Kigali, the capital. We are going to stay in neighboring cities. That is how many people went to stay in Gitarama, about 30 miles away, or Wamagana, the same distance. As who couldn't leave Kigali due to our work demanding, we had to stay. But we lived, we left our house. We went to stay in the hotel, in hotel, in the hotel. That time, killers were coming, breaking windows, throwing grenades in rooms, killing many people, injuring many others. So the whole country was scared. On one end, by the rebels, the Tutsi armed rebels, on the other side, by the militia men. On April the 6th, 1994, I remember at 8.30, I was having dinner with my brother-in-law, Thomas, and his wife. As those ones who have seen Hotel Rwanda have seen, and this is explained thoroughly in an ordinary man, I was having dinner with him and his wife when my wife, who was not with us, heard a missile hitting the plane and completely destroying the presidential plane in which two presidents, two Hutu presidents were killed. When both Hutu presidents were killed, and yet another Hutu president was again killed six months before by the Burundi's Tutsi army, since Rwanda and Burundi have gotten the same, exactly the same people, we are Hutus, 85% in both countries. Tutsis, 14% in both countries. Batwa, 1% in both countries. So Burundi was ruled by Tutsis, and Rwanda was ruled by Hutus. And the first Hutu president, elected democratically, was now assassinated. That time, the whole region was just boiling. Killing both presidents this time was just like pouring a big, a big container of oil on a, on a fire which was already burning when both presidents were killed. My wife was not with us for me and told me that, listen, I have heard something I never heard ever in my life before. Please, rush and come back home. We do not know what is going to follow. My brother know his wife and myself, we stood up and we went towards the car park, the, car, the parking. For the last time in life, I shake their hands. They, are, they went their way, were killed, and never found. But as you have seen in Hotel Rwanda, at the, at the end of the movie, we found their two babies in a refugee camp, and we took them as our daughters. Even today, they are with us. They were babies, I say babies, because the elder one, that time when we found them, was two years old. Her sister was nine months old. So they would be just babies. That was the beginning of an endless hell, kind of. On day one of the genocide, very early in the morning, 
I heard the prime minister, a young lady, describing how militia men, how the army, sorry, was butchering her bodyguards. Her bodyguards were Belgian soldiers who were supposed to be, to us, peacekeepers. And yet, they were not peacekeepers, they were not peacemakers. They were just neutral observers. Describing how they were butchering her bodyguards and immediately she was also killed. When 10 Belgian soldiers were killed, the Belgian government decided to pull out from those UN peacekeepers. And when Belgium decided to pull out, backed by the United Kingdom, the United States, the whole of the international community decided to pull out and abandon a whole nation to thieves, to thugs, to gangsters, to killers of all sorts. On day one of the genocide, that very mo same morning, my son went out to see one of his friends, a son of a neighbor. When he arrived, his friend, his mother, his six, six sisters, two neighbors, all of them had just been slaughtered and some of them not yet completely dead. That boy came back running. He was 15 years old. He went to his room, stayed for 15 days without talking. That was the beginning of an endless killing, the beginning of a kind of a hell. That day, I was very much disappointed to notice that a human being can just follow like water. A word for water, you have just to create a path and just pour water, and water will follow. A human being is more or less like that. This is what I noticed through that experience. That morning, I was very much disappointed to notice that many of my neighbors, those people used to take as gentlemen, those ones we used to take as respectable gentlemen, leaders, those people that children, young people, could take as their heroes. We saw them in military uniforms, in militia uniforms, already neighbors killing neighbors. In the meantime, the international community has decided they had brought us 2,500 and inspired all of those people who had left the country to come back because they had come to gain the peace agreement implemented. And when those people who had come out from abroad, when they heard that the UN are there, we all, all of us went back. I remember also going back to my house and I was caught in that house. So they decided to pull out. We saw people rushing, going to, their, going to buses, UN buses, going to UN trucks, jumping in with their cats, their dogs, human beings left behind. Many people in, the, in those places like schools where they had gathered in under the UN protection, they are now with begging, telling the UN soldiers that please do take us with you because if you don't, these killers are going to kill us. But when the international community decided to, call, to close eyes, when the international community decided to close ears, when they decided to run away, they simply left. I saw with my own eyes the last disturbing witness, a journalist living 
on April the 15th, just a week after the genocide broke out, we remained on our own. People killed people, piled dead bodies on the roads to make roadblocks, sat on them, drank beers. We saw fathers killing their children, killing their wives, wives killing husbands, priests and pastors killing their church members, and church members killing their priests and their pastors. We saw a lot of disaster in that country during that period. But in the meantime, even if I saw the international community pulling out, evacuate even, evacuating even the UN soldiers, I never wanted to give up because someone somewhere had to take responsibilities. I remember on April 23rd, I went to sleep at just 4 a.m. in the morning. I had spent my night sending faxes, phoning, whenever I couldn't, whenever I couldn't phone, sitting down, drafting a paper, a fax, putting it in a machine, in a fax machine, sending it to the White House, to the Elysee in Paris, to Brussels, to the United Nations, all over the world, asking, seeking for help, asking them to intervene. I never gave up, even if I saw them leaving. I wanted to shame them. That night, I went to sleep at four, and was woken up at six by soldiers, guns pointed on my head, with orders from the Ministry of Defense to turn out all the Mikorin refugees, and I was given half an hour, 30 minutes, to turn out every one. I started negotiating with those guys, telling them that, listen, you guys, all of these people who are here are refugees. If I tell them to leave, I'll be telling them that they're going where? Who's taking them? How is he taking them? What security has been organized? They just looked at me and laughed, told me that we are sure you did not understand our message. Tell those people to go as they came. Now, I had understood their message. It was much more clear. It meant to say in Kenya Rwanda that we do not care. I told them, now I do understand you, but please give me at least 30 minutes rather so that I can also get up. I was in bed, in my bed. Then I started, I started negotiating with them for that deadline, the new deadline. After a long time of discussion, we came up with an agreement. I was given my 30 minutes, and during those 30 minutes, uh, 30 minutes, I went to the roof of the hotel and looked, or watched what was going on all around us. The hotel was surrounded by militia men. Many soldiers were on the hotel compound, ready to slaughter their victims. Well, I, came, I said to myself for the first time that, listen, Paul, this is the end of it now. I ran down that time. Our phones were working, still working. I ran down to my room, started calling all the generals I knew in the country. It was that their timing was, was perfect because 6 a.m. in Kigali, was 6 a.m. in Paris, was 6 a.m. in Brussels, was midnight in Washington and New York. So that timing was perfect. There was no one who was going to be contacted, to be called in the international community. 
That was the perfect in turning. But I started then, I had to rely upon my local acquaintances. I called all the generals I knew. And before the end of my deadline, I saw all the, the assistant general chief of staff on the hotel compound. And when I saw him, I was kind of relieved. That time, that gentleman saved our lives. When he saved our lives, we stayed again in that house. Think about a situation where you have more than a thousand people. You don't have water, no running water anymore. You, our water was cut off right from the beginning. I started going down to the swimming pool myself, rationing the swimming pool water. You can imagine, people had no other means than taking their dustbins from their rooms, their hotel rooms, bringing them down to the swimming pool, coming to get a few drops of water for the day. And also in the evening at five, doing the same thing. Many times I could go sit around down there, around the swimming pool, watch that water and wonder where we could find another drop for the following day, for the following week. Our electricity was also cut off. I started using generators. Our generators broken down. And then we stayed in a total darkness. Think about such a situation. Think about the phone. To give, think about feeding more than a thousand people. Even if it is just a meal per day. Our meal was no more steak. But, but rather limiting to corn and dry beans. And that, that was it in that hotel. I started smuggling firewood, cooking with the firewood. Can you imagine? Sometimes, whenever I go back to the Mikolin Hotel, I always sit around the swimming pool, drink my coffee, watch that water. That water at that time was more expensive than golds and diamonds. I always watch that big focus tree, which is on the hotel compound under which we used to cook during those rains of April and May of the year 1994. I will never forget such a period. And on top of that, I have described to you water, electricity, food. But the killers, militiamen, and soldiers were coming in the hotel and also going out. Because if you want to control someone, you need to have that person close to you. Because otherwise, you will never know what people think about, about you and what might follow. You can, never, you can only know it just in a way of keeping them close to you. And this is what I did. And those people were coming in, having a drink, and upstairs I had threatened refugees. We stayed like that without any hope to survive until I remember May the 2nd. That is when a proposal was made, an agreement, but that one didn't work. The people were stopped, almost killed, and then brought back. I remember when they were brought back, my wife had her, her back broken lying flat in the back of, that, of a truck. And I went in other people's blood and hers mixed. I went to pick her up, brought her to the room. 
where she's staying for quite a long time without even being able to turn herself in bed. We stayed like that without any hope. And that time that day, I had made a decision, the toughest I have ever made in my life, not to be evacuated, but to send my, my wife and children to a known destination without any hope to meet them anymore. That was the most, the most heartbreaking situation I have ever faced in my life, escorting them, helping them to climb into the wind tracks where they were going to be evacuated, seeing them taking off and seeing them back, beaten, almost killed. We stayed again without any hope to survive until May 26, when many of my friends came to me and told me that, listen, Paul, now, this is your last chance. There was another evacuation which was supposed to take place. This is your last chance. It is you to take it. If you don't, you are going to be killed. Because for so long, you have been an obstacle to the killers. They, and they know that before killing these people, they first of all have to kill you. And they are going to do it. I told them that, listen, my friends, the reason why I was not evacuated on May 3rd has not yet changed. All the Mikorin refugees are not going to be evacuated tomorrow and after tomorrow. Therefore, I'm not going to leave. And this time, even my wife is not leaving. My children are not leaving. We have made a decision to remain behind all of us until the time when all the Mikorin refugees will have been evacuated. That evening on May 26, those friends of, of ours were very much, they took me as a fool. They said, but what kind of person are you? They couldn't understand me. Then we came up with an agreement. The agreement was to do what we call in Kinyarwanda, the blood brotherhood. Blood brotherhood, normally you cut each other on your bellies. And then drink each other's blood. And from that day onwards, you become brothers blood brothers. We did not do that because of AIDS, because of um, hygienic conditions, because of so many reasons that day. But we agreed on that. We came to that agreement and those, those friends of ours, we called our children. They sat down on the floor and we told them that, listen, you guys, from now onwards, we were four families and about 20 kids, if not more. And we told our children that, listen, as your parents, we might be killed today or tomorrow if you happen to. The elder ones who will remain among you guys will always care for the younger ones. In tears, we shaked hands. And then our friends were evacuated and we remained behind without any other hope to survive until June the 17th. On June the 17th, very early in the morning, I learned that the militia men were killing refugees in a neighboring church. When I learned that, I was very much concerned. I had no solution. I started phoning again, and by luck, I saw the mayor of Kigali just on the hotel compound. I went to meet him and told him that, listen, sir, you are the right person. You are the right person I need now. You are the only one who can solve my problems. I need soldiers to come and reinforce security all around this house. 
and I can't give them. You are the only one who can give them to me. He looked at me and told me that, listen, Paul, I don't have soldiers. Other soldiers are fighting. Others are just taking care of official buildings. I looked at him, very angry, very bitter, and told him that, listen, my friend, all of this you and I see today will one day come to an end. And the very end, when this will come to an end, you and I, both of us, will have to face history. We will have to face justice. Are you sure that this answer is the right answer you and I would give to history? Are you sure that this is the right answer? He was just offended. He then looked at me for seconds, turned his back. I saw him joining his bodyguards. We're going to his jeep, getting into the gym, and disappearing. Without any other hope, we, with an empty head, I just stood there watching trees and dead flowers without any other solution in mind. But I remembered. I remember that. I had an appointment with his boss, General Bizimungu, at the Diplomat Hotel, and I went to meet him. I had to give him some supplies. When I was standing in the diplomat cellars with him, I was immediately informed that militia men are just running, coming up to the Mikolin Hotel, trying to kill the Mikolin refugees. When I learned that, I told him that, General, let us go down to the Mikolin Hotel. We drove approximately a mile away, went up to the Mikolin, and when we arrived at the Mikolin Hotel, General Bizimungu, who is actually General Bizimungu, that is his name, and that is, he was a general chief of staff. We, when, we, when we arrived at the hotel, he told one of his bodyguards that you, certain, go up there and tell all of the, all the militia men who are there, who are in this hotel, that whoever will kill someone, I'm killing him. Tell them that whoever will beat someone, I'm killing him. Them, let them know that whoever will kill someone, I'll, we, we, even with the men in this house for the next five minutes, I'll shoot him. He himself went up and down and removed those guys. And yet, they had broken many doors, taken already many people down by the swimming pool, surrounding the swimming pool, many of them kneeling down, hands up, ready to be slaughtered. That day, General Bizimungu saved our lives, and a decision, an emergency decision, was taken, and this was, this time, to evacuate the hotel without any condition. They came to me in the evening, told me that they wanted to evacuate the people. I reminded them what happened to us on May 3rd, when we tried to do so, and all of those people were almost massacred. And then, just kindly, I devised to reinforce security around the hotel and then evacuate the hotel the following morning, which we did. We came up with that agreement. The following morning, on June the 18th, starting from very early, we started evacuating the people, taking them to any dis destination of their own choice. From the beginning to the end, 
Mikolin had 1,268 refugees. All of them went down. None had been killed. None had been beaten. None had been even taken away from that day onwards. Thank God. God had made a miracle in that hotel. Was it the same in the whole country? No. We decided to go we decided to drive to go to the rebel sign where we were frustrated again. Many men again invited for meetings and killed. Many young men invited to join the rebels army and killed. People like me, people of my age invited to do what was called local defense training and again killed by the Tutsi rebels. Was there anywhere we could have peace? Each and every sign was killing. We stayed in for, there for two weeks. After two weeks, we came back. I did not leave the country, as the movie suggests. We came back to town. I started cleaning both hotels, Mikolin and Diplomat. And on, June, on July the 15th, I reopened both. But in the meantime, on July the 12th, a friend, my wife and myself, drove south to see whether there was anything remaining in the place in our land, in our homeland, on our way, the whole country was smelling death. All along the roads, there were dead, many dead bodies. You couldn't see any human being alive. There was no animal. Everything had been killed. We could see a lot of flies just all over and hear from far, from the background, dogs barking, fighting for those dead bodies. We went up to my place, and when we arrived, I noticed that my elder brother was there. I wanted to see him. When I arrived, I started asking him questions. But where are our neighbors? And then he started telling me that so-and-so had been killed by the, by, by the militiamen. Others had been killed by the rebels. Many others were even being burned by those labels in houses. He showed me and told me that, listen, so and so and so at least are burning in those houses you can see burning. He, at a given time, looked at me and told me that, listen, my dear brother, do me a favor, leave this place. Because even these trees you can see have got ears and eyes. They do see you. They do hear what you're saying. Please leave. I decoded his message again and I drove down south to see my mother-in-law. When we arrived, before, before arriving, already her two houses had been destroyed. We noticed that she had been killed with her daughter-in-law, six grandchildren, all of them thrown in a pit. Just like young babies, we sat in those ruins. We cried and drove back to Kigali, where we stayed for another two years and more, until a time when I myself was almost assassinated and decided to go to exile. As this young lady said, history keeps on repeating itself, but does never teach us human beings and lessons. What I had been seeing throughout years in Rwanda, when I went to Darfur last year, I noticed that a million, two million people were just homeless. Their homes, 3,000 villages, had been destroyed 
by government bombardments, by helicopter bombardments on the ground, a militia armed by the government on horses was killing those civilians, fleeing, burning villages. A few people who had made in to, the, to Chan, a neighboring country, were sleeping on the Sahara sand without food, without shelter, without education, which is the basic need to the young generations. Ladies and gentlemen, that day I was very much ashamed to notice that when all of those young kids who have never gone to school since 2003, about 2,000 of them, when they saw us, they just gathered and demonstrated. When they were demonstrating, they had a big blackboard on which they had written, welcome to our guests, but we need education. Isn't that not a shame to mankind? On my way back, I was watching news in Air France. All the superpower leaders were gathered in Auschwitz. All of them speaking one after the other one. And the two most repeated words was never and again. Saying very loudly and proudly that what happened here 60 years ago, we never allow it to happen anymore. And yet what I was coming from, it was happening again and again. I cannot tell you all I went through. I cannot tell you my youth. I cannot tell you what happened later on. But I cannot describe what I went through during the hundred days in a few minutes. But what I can't explain, the ordinary men, that book you have seen will always explain everything in details. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to me. Thank you.